Well, I'd like to welcome you again to the Powell Butte Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. We have uh, just finished up a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and now we are in our summer series. And it really is a series about what a courageous church is to look like. So I hope that you'll stay with us and uh, continue to listen to these uh, these podcasts, these sermons, these messages. Uh, My name is Trey. I am... Uh, the uh, senior pastor here at Palview Christian Church in Palview, Oregon, where we meet uh, every weekend. Uh, you're invited, if you're ever in our area, to one of our weekend services. We have a cowboy church on Saturday night at 7, and then we have three uh, Sunday morning services uh, at 8.30 in our worship center. Right now we have a 9.30 outside in our west lawn, and then we have an 11.30 traditional service in our historic chapel. And we would love for you, if you've been listening to our podcast, if you're in the area of Central Oregon, to swing by and, and tell us hi and, and uh, come and fellowship with us. It would, it would be good. But as we begin this whole Courageous Church series, I, I wanted to start out with a story. Uh, one day, a, a very rich man had announced that in a party that he was throwing that if any person that was there at the party would be courageous enough to swim across his swimming pool. Uh, And that swimming pool was filled with more than 20 crocodiles and had a couple of sharks in it, and there was uh, some electric eels as well. The, the, The rich man said, listen, if anybody has enough courage to swim across this swimming pool and emerge on the other side unharmed, he will be rewarded with either half of the rich man's property or uh, his beautiful daughter in marriage. Well, as soon as he finished his last word, there was the sound of a large splash coming from the pool. There was a guy in the pool who was swimming with all of his might. The crowd began to cheer him on, and finally he made it to the other side of the pool, got out of the pool. He was unharmed. The rich man was overjoyed with the courage of this young man, and he congratulated him and and asked, What do you want, sir? Uh, Do you want uh, half my property, or do you want my daughter in marriage? The man replied, Sir, I don't want your property. I don't want your daughter. I I want to know the jerk who threw me into the pool. So again, we're beginning a brand new series called The Courageous Church. And in this series, we're going to look at the mission statement, actually, of Palview Christian Church. That is actually kind of summarized in, in the four words, connect, grow, serve, and go. Now, I had been intending to just have this a sermon series on the book of Daniel. But as I have dove into more research about what we wanted to talk about with this courageous church idea... I really feel like we can start here in Daniel, but we, we really should be studying a lot of different characters from, from Scripture who are demonstrating in their stories the kind of courage that God has called you and I into as believers and then as we are corporate worship and corporate fellowship, uh, what the church needs to be. But like I said, as we began, Daniel's going to be a great study because with an increased intolerance in our culture for anything sacred, I I think Daniel and his three friends that we read of their stories in the book of Daniel, they're going to give us a great model of what it means to be a courageous church. You, You see, Daniel's story and his situation really does in many ways parallel our own situation. You see, for most of Daniel's life, he was in the minority a man of faith in the minority uh, in a pagan culture from the time that he had been a teenager 
until his death at about 90 years old. Daniel lived out of faith in God under a series of pagan kings in a foreign land. He never had the luxury of living in a country that was surrounded by people who had the same beliefs that he did, this faith in the one God, the one true God, Jehovah. There was continual pressure on Daniel and his three friends to conform to the pattern of that pagan world. There were threats. There was persecution. There were temptations to compromise. And yet, throughout the entire book, Daniel and his three friends are able to stand against all of that. And because of that, God actually blesses them and provides for them and protects them. You know, it was recently asked of our leadership here at the church, what kind of church are we? Someone has noted that there are three categories under which all churches can fall. Churches can either be complicit or they can be complacent or they can be courageous. I, I want to break those three categories down so that we can understand them a little bit better. First of all, churches can be complicit. And, and that just means that they're contributing to the, the problems of this world. That they're, they're no different than the world at all. And in fact, they are contributing to the sin in this world. Uh, when you see everything falling apart, they're not just not helping. They're actually contributing to the problems. That, that's the church that's complicit. But churches can be complacent as well. And, and uh, the, the person who noted this uh, said that probably most churches, a, a good percentage of the churches in, in the world are, are complacent churches. These churches, that they are filled with believers who are saved, and they enjoy being saved, but there seems to be no power to, to do anything uh, amongst the people. Uh, sins stay untouched by convictions. And so they stay hidden, and they stay, the people stay in bondage to those sins. Traditions in those churches outweigh any kind of the moving of the Spirit to do something new and, and bold. People seem stuck or stunted in their spiritual growth because they're contented to just come on a Sunday morning uh, occasionally, or, or maybe even regularly, but never have any kind of real deep spiritual growth. Complacent churches are comfortable churches who never really risk anything for the Lord. And so because of that, few miracles are witnessed. Nobody puts themselves into a place where a miracle is needed. And the church basically plays it safe. So a church can be complicit. It can be complacent. But finally, a church can be courageous. And a courageous church would stand firm for the truth of God's Word. They would be willing, if the Lord is leading, to throw out old traditions that have stifled new methods or, or creative ways of reaching those who are still in the darkness. They, they dare an annual budget that puts just as much resources into developing people as it does into maintaining the property of the church. Courageous churches look like Daniel and, and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, these four freshmen that were living in a foreign field. And this is why we begin with a few stories from the book of Daniel, because this book demonstrates clearly how disciples in God's upside-down kingdom can stand firm in a world where God's Word is being drowned out. How do we as a church strengthen ourselves? How do we respond to the rising tide of tolerance to sin and intolerance to God's Spirit? How do we respond to the persecution of the brothers and sisters around the world? How do we proclaim truth to those who don't even believe in the concept of ultimate 
truth. The book of Daniel is going to show us how to be a courageous church, or at least it will set the stage for us to make the kind of choices that will transform us into a courageous church. But before we dig in, I, I want to kind of take a look around and orient ourselves to get our bearings. And so as you make your way to the book of Daniel, chapter 1, I, I want to give you a few background facts of what brought Daniel to this point of, of history anyway. See, Daniel lived approximately 400 years after King David and approximately 600 years before Jesus. The, the book, Daniel, covers the period from 605 B.C. to about 530 B.C. In the beginning of the book, Daniel is a teenager, maybe 14, 15, maybe 16 years old. When the book closes, he's just right around 90 years old, and during that lifetime, God allows him to serve under a succession of Babylonian and Persian rulers. He started out as a hostage. He becomes a trusted prime minister. He becomes an advisor to some of the most powerful kings in world history. Well, when the book opens, we, we find Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, being forcibly taken from their homes in Jerusalem and being deported into the land of Babylon. These, these were Hebrew teens. They're just teenagers, and they're going to undergo there in Babylon an enormous cultural transformation as they are being trained by the enemy to work for the enemy, to work for a pagan government. Now, there are uh, three groups of players uh, as we begin to look at the book of Daniel, three groups of main players in this story. First of all, there's going to be Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, and the, the rest of the Babylonians. Now, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians are going to represent the world, a world system that's hostile to God. You know, if you look at Babylon in the Bible, Babylon is always, without exception, is always in the Bible a symbol for evil and for a culture that is against God. It starts with the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. It comes then to a climax in Revelation 17 and 18 as the entire world system is seen as a, a, a harlot or a whore or a prostitute and being finally destroyed at the second coming of Jesus. So that's the first group, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, representing the evil in this world. Secondly, there's Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And these guys are representing God's people in the world, striving to live faithfully in God's kingdom, God's upside-down kingdom, in the midst of heavy spiritual opposition. And then finally, there is God Himself, the sovereign Lord of all, who actually decides to leave His people in the world, but is always working behind the scenes through them for their protection, for their provision, and for His glory. You know, it's, it's interesting, as you look through Daniel, God doesn't speak a word here, but you can see Him clearly working behind the scenes. And even as the story begins, we see this amazing parallel to the church in the Western culture today, fighting a battle against the forces that are trying to trip us up, to tempt us, to tear us away from God's purpose for our lives. And we've become very, very complacent, allowing the enemy to have his way. See, the enemy starts with a frontal assault, and it's easy to recognize that frontal assault. 
But the enemy then moves very quickly into a subtle attempt at complete annihilation of all that is godly and all that is spiritual and all that is good. And it's that subtle attack that we must be aware of and, and become uh, people that will fight against that. Daniel 1.1. We, we begin with Daniel chapter 1. The very first verse says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So this book, it's very intriguing, this book begins with total defeat. The very first verse takes us back to 605 B.C. As Nebuchadnezzar's armies have come against Jerusalem and they are surrounding it, besieging it. I mean, that's almost like it could be ripped out of today's headlines from the Middle East. See, we know that eventually the king of Babylon, which is present-day Iraq, by the way, they, it's, the king is eventually going to overrun Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to fall. We know that. But from the day of this siege in 605 B.C. and onward, everything, the temple, the city, all things that mattered most, they're going to fall into the hands of the pagans. So my first point here is that this, in our own culture, we still have an enemy, just like Jerusalem had an enemy in Babylon. And we have an enemy, and that enemy is going to try to destroy our heritage. The siege led to a deportation of folks from Jerusalem. A second deportation happened again, then later on in 597. And finally, in 586, the Babylonians utterly destroyed the temple. And they left the city of Jerusalem in ruins, and they tore the protective walls down. Daniel and his friends are taken to Babylon in the first wave of the exile, and now they're far from home. They had been cut off from all that they had known. The intent of the Babylonians was to wipe out any connection to a conquered people's heritage. The, the thought was if they removed the people from their land, then those people would not be able to worship their God because guess what? We've destroyed their temple. And they will not be able to have a connection or a remembrance of their heritage because they're going to be surrounded by a pagan culture that will provide them different answers, better answers in, in the king's mind, obviously. And so this is how they're going to wipe out any Hebrew heritage. Make people forget the past, you can alter their future. You separate God's people from His story and you will change history. And the alarming thing is that really works every single time. In our culture, even as we speak, there are efforts right now in place to rewrite the history of the church, to rewrite the history of America's founding as a Christian nation, a nation at least founded on Christian principles. For a church to be a courageous church, we must be aware of what is happening and willing to say we will not let our heritage be taken away from us. We are going to stand firm on what we know to be the truth about our founding, the, the, the truth about what God has said about this world, the truth that we find in God's Word. The enemy will try to destroy our heritage, and we can't let that happen. The enemy will also try to deconstruct our faith. Verse 2 says, The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These Nebuchadnezzar carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, 
and put in the treasure house of his God. What was Nebuchadnezzar trying to say? He was trying to say, listen, my God is greater than your God. So by looting God's temple, he's claiming victory over Israel's God. And, and to the world, it would appear that God was, in fact, dead. The, the God of the Hebrews was, in fact, dead. How else are you going to explain being able to go into his temple, to his house, and loot it? Either he is impotent or he's dead. And once you kill God, you've killed faith. Because now faith is unreasonable. Humanism now needs to come in, swoop in, and save the day. Folks, in the age of enlightenment in the Western world, mankind declared the death of God. Because he, he felt like we didn't need God to explain things anymore. Or, so they thought, in evil arrogance. People began to call faith a crutch. And, and religion was called the opiate of the masses. And claiming to be wise, they were darkened in their understanding and they became fools. As all as they attempted to deconstruct the faith in God's people. Thirdly, the enemy will try to indoctrinate our minds. It will try to destroy our heritage, deconstruct our faith, and will indoctrinate our minds. Look at verses 3 through 5. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter into the king's service. Now it's helpful to know that starting here, everything else in the book of Daniel takes place in Babylon. From this point on, Daniel is away from Israel, his homeland. And as far as we know, he never, ever returned. This is what's going on here that we just read. That's classic brainwashing, trying to assimilate one culture into another. It's indoctrination. It begins with a selection, uh, a selection process that is aimed at the cream of the crop of the Jewish teenage boys. The king assigns them to his right-hand man, Ashpenaz, and then he makes sure that they get the best education that Babylon can offer. For three years, they will be in, immersed in Babylonian knowledge and culture, the history, the language, the religion, the literature. And at the end of that three years, they're going to enter into the king's service and be assured of high-level governmental positions. It's clever, very clever, and it's very seductive. Mind control has always begun with the young. Hitler's youth college professors stuffing their own philosophies into the heads of impressionable young people. Babylon had a three-step plan for re-educating these sharp young Jewish teenagers. Step one, you get a full scholarship to Babylon State University, the Ivy League of the ancient world, and there you're going to learn science and math and Akkadian and astrology and commerce and history. That's step one. We're going to give you an education, a different kind of education. Number two, we're going to offer you some great blessings, some free food from the, the king's own table. The, it, talk about a buffet, an all-you-can-eat buffet. It's all you can eat all the time. Even back then, they, they knew that <laughs> the way to a young man's heart was through his stomach. Step three, 
changed their names. If you look at verse 7, it says, the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. Uh, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. The digression that we just have observed here, folks, is frightening. It is classic brainwashing. Babylon is able to conquer because they understood the power of reprogramming people's minds. Indoctrination gets you to believe that the culture that was once seen as hostile is actually not all that bad. In fact, you could even say that this new culture is good for you. It's, it's good to accept people for who they are and the choices they make, though very, very sinful and away from the design of God. It's good to believe that there is no one group that has universal truth that everyone must bow to. It's good to be open-minded. And once you buy into that, church, once you buy into that, once your thinking begins to change, then your life reflects that. Your life will change. Your identity will change. This is why Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah were robbed of their Hebrew identities they were given new names, and those names had meanings, by the way. Their Hebrew names all had contained references to the God of Israel. Uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, El and Yah in your name would refer to the God of Israel. But now they have new Babylonian names that would reflect worship of the gods of the Babylonians, Bel and Aku and Nebo. So Daniel, God is my judge, becomes Belteshazzar, which means Bel, protect the king. Bel being one of the Sumerian, uh, the Babylonian gods. Hananiah, which meant the Lord is gracious, becomes Shadrach, which means commander of Aku. Mishael, who is like the Lord, becomes Meshach, who is what Aku is. And Azariah, the Lord is my helper, becomes Abednego, which is servant of Nebo. To me, it's scary that Nebuchadnezzar did such a great job of indoctrination that most Christians today have succumbed to his wiles. Yes, we still talk about Daniel, and we still know him by his Hebrew name, but we don't tell the kids the story of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Nope. Even in our own culture, we have adopted the Babylonian deity honoring names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Whoops. See how easy that was? We don't even know them by their God-fearing names anymore. We know them as their Babylonian deity honoring names. Clearly, the goal was for these young men to begin to think and act and speak like the pagans around them. It might have worked. In fact, it probably did work for many of the, the teenagers that came over from Jerusalem. But there was one thing that these four guys had going for them. Y you see, you can change the outside, but you can't change one's heart. And here's the hope that we have today. Here's the hope that all Christian parents who worry, rightly so, about the negative influence that this world will have on their kiddos in the end, our job is to plant the seed of God's truth and trust God to bring the harvest. You can change the outside, but you cannot change the heart. See, God's plan is that we would 
protect our heart, that we would guard our heart. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. The world would love to squeeze the disciples of Jesus into their mold. And because of that, folks, there's going to be pressure. We will never be able to avoid the pressure. But we don't have to give in, which brings us to the last point for this morning. Not only uh, will the enemy try to destroy our heritage, uh, to deconstruct our faith and to indoctrinate our minds, but you need to understand this. The enemy will try, but the enemy doesn't have to win. The enemy doesn't have to win. Did not win with Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. Because as we come to the end of our text today, things appear hopeless. You have four teenagers ready to take on the most important and mightiest man in the world. It doesn't seem like they've got a chance. But you've got to know this, church, that no matter how big the opponent, no matter what the size of the army that is coming against you, it doesn't matter if it's, if it's just you or you and three friends. Because anyone, any believer plus God is always a majority. Anybody plus God is always a majority. Because next to God, even Nebuchadnezzar doesn't look that big. And he definitely is not in control. Now, God is in control. There's something that we just kind of passed over that I want to go back to in verse 2. Look back at verse 2. It says, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. See, what happened to Jerusalem was not an accident. It was not the enemy overpowering God. I'm sure that the headline in the Babylonian Sun-Times would have read, Nebuchadnezzar takes Jerusalem. But that would be wrong because he didn't take Jerusalem. God gave Jerusalem to him. If God had not done that, Nebuchadnezzar would never have taken it at all. This week I read a statement that seems to fit these crazy days that we live in. It says, Christians should be the calmest people on the face of the earth. Christians should be the calmest people on the face of the earth. What that means is that as disciples, as disciples of Jesus who are living now in God's upside-down kingdom, we really have no right to run around wringing our hands thinking that, that we're going to lose. In fact, we, we should take our, our cue from David, the little shepherd boy, years before he would become king. When he came out to see his brothers who were facing this Philistine giant, Goliath, David said this, 1 Samuel chapter 17, this day he was talking to this huge soldier, the Philistine soldier, who had been mocking the God of Israel. And he says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Do you see the courageousness in his words? He says, I'm going to give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is... The Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And then in verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly, not away from the battle, but toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. What gave him that kind of courage? 
What gave Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah the courage to stand against all of the pagan influence of the culture that they lived in then? Knowing this, knowing that the battle is the Lord's. You know, as, as much as we might fear what's going on in our culture, God is not up in heaven looking down on us, down on our culture, wringing his hands, despairing, wondering what he's going to do with all this sinfulness that he sees. Folks, when we go and whine to him, his response is, is like my mom's. Whenever I would go to her and I would throw myself a pity party and I would invite her to come and join me, commiserating with me, oh, poor me, Mom, my life is hard. I'm lonely. This is hard. This is difficult. And she would say, well, and at that point I knew that she was not going to attend my pity party. I knew that she was not going to commiserate with me, and I knew she would say this. Have you prayed about this? Have you turned to God? See, she would always direct my attention back to God. The beginning of the book of Daniel sure seems to be a clear triumph of evil over good. Daniel would seem to have every right to whine and cry and complain to God. But Daniel trusted that since God had allowed this to happen in the first place, God was still in control. He understood that God had done this. God was still in control. Nebuchadnezzar was not in control. The battle that lay ahead was God's and God's alone. And so verse 8, I really want us to understand verse 8 today, begins like this. Verse 8 begins, but Daniel purposed in his heart. How does Daniel and his three friends find the strength to survive in a pagan culture? How will we survive the continual onslaught of our faith in our culture? Courage. The kind of courage that God calls us to have. But that's only going to come when we have, as, as his people, like Daniel, purpose in our hearts to not give in. To stand firm. To persevere. To rely on the truth of God's word. And so the, your body may be in Babylon, but your heart is in Jerusalem or the new Jerusalem, which is the kingdom of heaven. See, that's the first step in becoming a courageous church, to realize that the battle is still the Lord's. Folks, connect, grow, serve, and go will only mean something to us when we take them seriously, when we approach them in a courageous way where we won't allow the, the, the world, the culture around us, to shape our commitment to our connecting with God's people, to our own personal spiritual growth, to actually serve to the point where it actually is inconvenient and hurts, and then to go and realize that there is a world that is lost and dying that God has called us to go into and make disciples out of. We haven't lost, folks. Now, we may act like we have. We may defeat ourselves by acting like the world. We, we may look like we've already lost by withdrawing and hiding from the, 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 the stands that God has called us to make. We tend to be the type of people at times that snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. God has given us the victory, and yet we seem to think, well, we're, we're going to die. We're, we're going to be overcome. We, we've, we're going to lose. And we have snatched defeat from the jaws of victory rather than the other way around. 
we need to, we need to take to heart what Jesus tells us in John chapter 17. This is Jesus' prayer for you and for me. He says, My prayer, Father, is not that you would take my disciples out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. Later on, he would go on to say that in this world we will have trouble. But then he says, Take heart or be strong and courageous, for I have overcome the world. Have you ever heard of the Cheyenne dog soldiers? The dog soldiers were historically one of six Cheyenne military societies. Beginning in the late 1830s, this society evolved into a separate militaristic band that played actually a real dominant role in Cheyenne resistance to the United States' western expansion into their territory. The dog soldiers had a particularly aggressive and effective way of engaging in battle. One tradition tells us that in battle they would actually take one of these three sacred arrows that they would traditionally carry with them into battle and they would pin themselves using that arrow into a chosen piece of ground because they would have this unusually long rear apron, the sash that, that would be attached to, to, their, to their, um, their clothing, their outfit. And it would be a long sash going be behind them. They would take that arrow and they would stick it through that sash into this chosen piece of ground, which would then make them stay where they were. It made them stand their ground where they would have to either fight and achieve victory or they would die trying. They would not move. Folks, the enemy is expanding. And God calls us, just like Daniel and Hananiah and uh, Mishael and Azariah, to stand our ground as effectively as those Cheyenne dog soldiers to say, I'm not moving from this place. You're not going to make me like you, world, culture. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to be a courageous Christian. I'm going to be a courageous believer. I want to be a part of the courageous church that allows people to connect courageously and to grow courageously and to serve courageously and to go courageously. That's what this is all about, folks. And these next several weeks, we're going to be looking about at, at these stories found in Daniel and other places in the Old Testament where we see what God's people are supposed to do rather than just sit around like many, many churches do, complacent, comfortable, never a- achieving anything that is not humanly possible so we never see God truly at work. And so that's what I want to call you to. I I hope that you're ready for that battle because it will be a battle. But the battle is the Lord's. We we must understand. The battle is the Lord's. All right. Well, that's about wraps it up for today. Uh, You you know, I I love the the people who come and, and are part of our church. I love serving as their pastor because I see such potential in this church. And I would love to see this church be so excited and on fire for the things of God that we become the courageous church that God has called us to be. As you're listening to this podcast, I pray for you as well that you would be in your own personal spiritual walk a courageous believer 
who will stand against what the culture wants to create in you. So God bless you, and hopefully we will have you tune in next week.